Actually, so before we start talking about, you know, the two papers of yours that I want to talk about, um, the deforming the metric of cognitive maps and navigating cognition, mm-hmm. um, I'm just curious, how did you find out about grid cells or play cells or whatever, and how did you end up getting interested in doing this kind of research? That's very interesting. So I uh, I studied psychology uh, mm-hmm. as my undergrad, and I I got fascinated by memory research mostly. And so I worked with Sharon uh, Ranganath at UC Davis for a few months, and then kind of was determined to do a PhD in memory research. And I found this position in, in Christian Jolly's lab that I signed up for or applied for, and was very lucky to get. And yeah, that's kind of how how the whole thing started. And in the beginning, or so my, my first PhD project was on sort of these grid-like signals and imagination and memory recall. So that's sort of the link uh, between my initial interest in memory and then um, fitting in the space or the navigation stuff. But, but you'd heard of grid cells before you applied for the position? or Yeah, I mean, I, I'd okay. heard a bit, a bit about them, but um, not so much. And I, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Was the first one? Is that the the eLife paper in Donderstown? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So you really came through memory. I think that's kind of unusual, right? I feel like, or I feel like a lot of people who, when they hear about grid cells or play cells, at least for for me, I heard about it in my masters for the first time, and I was, and I almost did a research project on this. Um, and for me, it was just like this immediate, like, oh, this is really cool. I want to work on this. And yeah. No, um, I, I definitely had this feeling of being being fascinated by. Uh... <laughs> by by really learning about it right but like i feel i only only really learned about it during my phd like before i had some superficial knowledge and I, my my true fascination only started when i uh, dug a little bit deeper oh cool okay so um as i mentioned before we started recording we probably should at least very briefly mention a few keywords um so can you in i don't know a minute or two it doesn't have to be long say what play cells grid cells are uh, and maybe what a cognitive map is i guess yeah um maybe i'll I'll start with the play cells uh we can go, go in chronological order so sure. uh, play cells were discovered by uh, john o'keefe in in the early 70s and what uh, john o'keefe did is he recorded the activity of uh, individual neuron uh, neurons in the rat hippocampus and he did that while an animal was moving through space. So uh, the animal was moving through a little environment, a little box. And what John O'Keefe noticed was that specific cells were most active when the animal was located at a specific position uh, in space. So for example, the northwest corner of the environment. And so one cell would always fire whenever the animal was at, at that location. And so he termed these cells place cells. And the idea is that each cell has a preferred location or uh, where it exhibits a so-called firing field and together the population of place cells could provide something like uh, a map of the different locations that are known in the environment and so in if we think about uh, what a cognitive map is then it's maybe like a representation of different locations in space that is somehow true to their um, relationships so for example the distances and uh, directions between positions uh, in space can be read out from uh, from this map and then maybe the uh, the third component or the third um, term we we uh, you mentioned are grid cells, and these were uh, discovered by Maybrit Moser and Edward Moser, and um, they were discovered in the entorhinal cortex, so uh, one synapse upstream from the hippocampus. 
unlike uh, a play cell, which is active at one positions, uh, position in space, uh, a grid cell is active at many locations in space. And these um, locations, they're not randomly spread throughout the entire environment, but they're distributed in a very regular pattern where, uh, where the individual firing fields form the vertices of equilateral triangles that tile the entire space. So you end up with a super regular 60 degree uh, symmetric firing pattern. And that's actually how, uh, how they got their name. Yeah, and so maybe if if funny thing is, I think explaining play cells is pretty straightforward. Explaining grid cells gets very difficult without visual aids. So I think if this is completely new to any listener, just Google grid cell, and you'll probably see an image when it becomes pretty clear what what it is. But it's it's always funny, like when I ask, uh, you know, Matthias now did the same thing, and he also went this like, oh God, how do I explain grid cells in a way that's easy to understand just using words. Yeah, definitely. It's very helpful if uh, if you look at this uh, this pattern. Yeah. It's it's quite striking, but it's quite difficult to describe. I mean, maybe we could say it's like a chessboard, but not with squares, but with hexagonal patterns. Yeah, exactly. Um, or like a coordinate system. Maybe this is a, a metaphor that we can we can use a bit, right? So it's it's like a coordinate grid um, in a way, but um, they're not uh, squares, but uh, he- hexagons basically. Okay. And I mean, so these were all found, I mean, this was all started in animals, right? But then your PhD supervisor, Christian Dola, with Neil Burgess and Caswell Barry, they found a way to do this in humans. And I guess this is what, I mean, you've only been working in humans, right? With fMRI. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, 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 I work so, with humans. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of what we'll be talking about. I don't want to, uh, I, I, we'll get to the abstract stuff later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think maybe it might be important interesting to mention it briefly that even though all of this was found for spatial navigation that in the last I don't know, five to ten years or something um, that quite a few papers have come out of people showing that this entire system might be used for other dimensions or variables basically so it's not only the x and y axis of space but x and y can be any axis but yeah we'll get to that later i thought it would be just nice to mention it at least briefly in the beginning yeah, and maybe maybe one interesting thing to note there is that this is kind of coming back to to Edward Tolman, who who coined the term cognitive map, right? So uh, in in his work, which was based on navigating rodents, um, no um, no recordings of neurons, but he discovered that they were using something that he referred to as cognitive map, and he already speculated that uh, we might have these cognitive maps also for higher level psychological function, and I find it super fascinating that. Now, decades later, we're sort of circling back to these ideas. Uh, it's funny about this whole thing, right? When you you feel like there's something that's super new, but then there's a guy in what was it, forty eight or something, writing yeah. about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, so, some cognitive psychologist has done this forty years ago. <laughs> Whenever you yeah. think of a clever paradigm. Yeah, I mean, I've had that a lot when in my stuff. Uh, yeah, you think you have a cool idea, and then you find like some paper from the seventies or something. I mean, often they then. One thing I've at least found is that they then weren't often done quite as well, which is maybe why they weren't um, the findings aren't known as well because of the the way the experiment worked isn't quite as the, the evidence that maybe isn't quite as good or systematic as you'd like to have it. But I mean, with Tolman, it's fairly. Uh, I mean, that's well known, yeah. <laughs> but it, actually, this is something I, I underlined in your in your science review. Um, did he actually term the uh, coin the term? 
cognitive map i, I always wondered like where it started or i i think he was the one who started this yeah but uh i'm not entirely sure now but um okay, yeah i, mean, I think he's the one who who really started using this also for humans right um i think the the 48 paper is called something cognitive maps in mice and men and something yeah and i think is <laughs> i mean it's been like two years or something since i read that paper but i think it also gets kind of weird towards the end because it gets really political or something. something yeah, it gets weird. quite yeah. political, and um, it's also reflective of the ideas of how human psychology works at that time, right? It, it's it's quite different in terms of yeah how they perceive or how he describes the human mind or human psychological function. Yeah, but but yeah. apart from that, he yeah. seems to have been pretty spot on <laughs> yeah. with a lot of stuff. Uh, anyway, so uh, I guess I'll make a very rough transition here um so i want to talk about um your paper deforming the metric the metric of cognitive maps sorry deforming the metric of cognitive maps distorts memory maybe the easiest way is if you introduce it um just kind of like what the or maybe first all these first experiments were usually done in square boxes or round boxes or whatever it right? um so i'm just Maybe can you can you kind of introduce your paper that way by saying like how the shape of the environment in animal studies has been found to have yeah. an effect on this? Yeah. So so this is actually or, or the the standard um, grid cell recording study that is uh, is done in, in rats or mice is that the animal forages for for food. The experimenter show, uh, throws some cookie crumbs into the environment, and the animal uh, happily runs to pick them up. And this is typically done in uh, in square boxes that are fairly small, maybe uh, one square meter or so. And that, that's where you get these um, typically, um, or th these canonical uh, grid, uh, grid cell firing patterns, right? And then I think in uh, in 2015, a couple of papers came out, one from, um, from John O'Keefe's group and one from the Moser lab about um, the impact of environmental geometry or environmental boundaries on grid cell firing patterns that sort of suggested that boundaries have an impact of uh, on grid cell firing and that this can actually lead to distortions. And in particular, it's the study from John O'Keefe's group, which was led by uh, Julia Krupich and uh, Caswell Berry was, was also part of it, where they recorded grid cells in a trapezoidal environment uh, as well as in a square. And what they showed is that these typically regular patterns that you get in the square are distorted in the trapezoid. So um, they became less symmetric and they be uh, became sort of uh, expanded uh, in the trapezoid relative to the square. And we, we were sort of wondering whether there might be any functional implications uh, of these uh, these distortions. And uh, uh, I haven't mentioned it yet, but I put the references for the papers we mentioned in the description uh, so you don't have to look for those. You can just, I guess, look in the description. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one thing that I kind of found funny about your paper is that I I, I, started, I read it and then I think it took me, like I, I got halfway through the results until I realized there wasn't any fMRI. Somehow I was just so expecting an fMRI study because mm. it was about like red cells and cognitive maps. <laughs> and somehow I was like, wait a minute, there isn't any fMRI. Um, so was that the, so for you, the like the behavioral implication was the starting point or how did it kind of get, Going. Yeah, so so there are actually two reasons why there's no fMRI. Um, so, so one is we really wanted um, to look at behavior uh, because I think 
So everybody sort of assumes that grid cells are very important for navigation. And if we think about cognitive maps, then probably we think they're also important for, for memory somehow. But actually, this link is not as established as as we would maybe like. So for example, typical rodent uh, recording studies, there's often not really a, a task, right? Yeah. So there's no memory task. And also in... So there's some evidence that these fMRI grid proxy measures might correlate across subjects with uh, with, with spatial memory performance, but uh, within subjects there there hasn't really been uh, any investigation. So this is one one reason why we really wanted to to focus on behavior. And then the other aspect, um, while we actually couldn't uh, record any uh, any brain data here, is uh, that we wanted to use um, immersive virtual reality reality. Sorry. Um, where participants were actually using um, a head-mounted display, so like the Oculus Rift, and they were they were moving on uh, on a motion platform. So uh, this, of course, uh, prohibits uh, recording uh, fMRI at the same time. And the reason why we really wanted that is that we thought if there's an impact of um, of boundaries on on our spatial memory abilities. Then probably it's uh, it's rather subtle, but and so we wanted to maximize that impact. So we wanted to be as immersive as uh, as we could be, and that's why we went for this uh, this behavioral experiment. And there are also some more technical issues with uh, recording uh, these uh, this hexadirectional grid proxy measure in environments where the sampling is biased because it's an it's an analysis that's based on evenly sampling right. uh, yeah. movement directions through space. And so if you have a trapezoid, then your, your directional sampling will be um, will be biased, and this. Also, it's potentially a solvable problem, but it causes some issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's also it's not a a criticism of the paper. It's just somehow, uh, I guess, because I know the kind of studies that Christian does does in his lab, and because I've, yeah, I think like most of the papers in this area I've read have done fMRI. So it's it it was more like just my like my my priors were so strong (laughs) that it took me like quite a lot of words to get that. To, to start questioning that um, <laughs> assumption, but yeah, can uh, so one thing I was curious about is that, um, so I mean, as far as I understand, in the most of the standard um, human grid cell studies with fMRI, people use it was kind of like a computer game, right? You you press buttons and you move through this kind of arena or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Um, has anyone actually done a study where they compared whether uh, I guess yeah. the technical limitation is pretty obvious here, but um, I'm just curious. Do you think it's going to be like? Does it make a difference whether people actually move through the space or just watch an avatar kind of move through the space? Because in a way, that's an assumption you have, right? That's yeah. So, I mean, I can I can only speculate here, but mm-hmm. um, so from my personal experience using this VR setup, um, it's much easier to uh, to navigate um, because you simply have more cues, right? So you have um, cues about your body rotation. You, you kind of have uh, proprioceptive cues about the number of steps that you take. And these make it a bit easier to to navigate and to remember different positions. And I, I never formally tested it, but based on my experience with these desktop-based computer games, contrasting this to the immersive setup, I felt that participants were better uh, in the immersive version in uh, in learning positions, like they were a bit faster to pick it up. Uh, and I guess it's just easier to keep track of your 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 orientation. 
And then relatedly in uh, in rodents, there's um, there's interesting work now that uh, uh, that that tries to use VR in in rodents um, to sort of uh, dissociate the the contribution of different cues like visual cues or self motion cues on the formation of, of grid cell firing patterns and you mean like because you can manipulate these in vr but not as easily at least exactly yeah so if you use vr you can disentangle them right by you know, manipulating how fast you move for a given number of steps uh, how do you know much about that how does that i mean I've, i once i think one i saw a very funny image of like a i think a fruit fly on like yeah. some sort of ball with a huge screen in front of it so the fruit yeah. fly could kind of walk through this virtual space is, is it like that or how do you do it with rodents do you know? yeah i think it's uh it's a similar setup that you basically have a large like a trackball that the animal runs on so they had fixed often or sometimes so they are also groups that have setups uh, where the animal can uh, can turn their head and move around a little bit but in essence the animal walks on um, like a styrofoam ball and there's a big screen uh, that surrounds the environment yeah Oh, it surrounds just, the animal. Yeah, I just love the idea of. I don't know. It's just it's just inherently funny to me the idea of these rats being in some sort of VR. Yeah, and doing it doing VR and fruit fries. I mean, that's just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so that's it's it's something that kind of seems. Yeah, uh, it seems like it might be more, but. You, you didn't feel your grid cells firing more or less in no. all the other. <laughs> I, 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 I think uh, some variant of this question is to be asked to Matthias Stangl, right? Because he records signals in freely moving humans. Oh, that's a good point. So yes. uh, maybe soon we'll know the answer. I'll have to ask him that, yeah. Oh, yeah, because he doesn't have the, the, the fMRI limitation, right? Exactly, yeah. Uh-huh. Actually, I wrote that down because that's... A, it never occurred to me that yeah, this guy I'll be talking to soon might actually be the person to ask this question. Um, anyway, so okay, so 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 how did yeah? I guess the question is kind of like how you then how did you decide to do this study? Was it you read this paper uh, by Kropitsch et al. and thought let's do something with this, or how did it kind of or was yeah, there already so- like this question before where you thought like hey, I wonder how whether grid cells actually yeah so this was definitely something that i was interested in before so how uh, how do grid cells relate to cognitive function right so how how could they relate to memory or um, imagination for example that's something that i i worked on before and so i was definitely interested in that and then the idea was sort of that we could maybe use these distortions as as a window um, to look into how how this relationship might come about right of course, whenever I say this uh, in, in today's conversations, it's with the limit, limitation that this is a behavioral experiment, right? And we didn't actually record any uh, any yeah, brain yeah. signals. But I thought it was a very neat way of, I guess, uh, uh, um, how should we say, sidestepping the technical limitation of not being able to record fMRI in this context. Yeah, maybe, um, I guess we've only introduced the paper. Do you want to say briefly then what you found? Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, I think I haven't even really explained how or what we did, right? So. Yeah, yeah. In our experiment, participants navigated two environments. So one was a trapezoid and one was a square, and we'd we'd matched them for uh, for a surface area. And in each of the two environments, they learned the positions of six objects, and then uh, we probed their spatial memory. So we asked them, um, we showed them a cue with an object um, image, and then the task was to navigate. Uh, to the position in the environment where they think the object belonged. And as I said, we used 
this uh, highly immersive uh, VR setup. Um, and we also test them afterwards um, in a simple desktop-based experiment. And so for the first part, what we're interested in was we wanted to look at how precisely they could recall the positions of the individual objects, right? So basically, we, we measure the distance between where they think the object belongs and where the object actually belongs. And what we saw then was uh, that participants' memory for the object positions was uh, less precise in the trapezoid than in the square. And we also found evidence for a more fine-grained prediction that we had, um, namely that within the trapezoid, memory was particularly bad towards the narrow ends, towards the pointy part of the trapezoid. And this is exactly what um, Julia Kupich had reported uh, about the grid cell firing patterns in rats. One thing that really surprised me reading uh, this, I mean, I, ha I haven't read the Kupich paper yet, um, so... I wasn't aware of, of them having found that. And it kind of surprised me when I read it in your paper because it seemed kind of counterintuitive to me because I would have somehow imagined if you're closer to borders, it would be easier to remember this. But yeah, obviously that's not the case. So Yeah, so th this is um, definitely an expectation. Um, and it's actually something that we uh, confirmed that this is the case in the square. There it seems to work like that. But in the trapezoid, somehow this uh, this seems to break down. And so it's something that should work against us, right? So it should be easier to do this in the narrow end because you're closer yeah, okay. to the boundaries. You have you, you should actually have more cues about where you are. But somehow uh, this this effect could only be seen in, uh, in the square. Do you have any idea why? Well, I, mean, I, I, I like to hope, yeah. I, I hope to think that it's somehow related to the grid cells. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so I mean, typically, I think we use boundaries to, to kind of anchor our cognitive maps, right? So to anchor our representations of space, we, we maybe use the corners of a room. And I don't think so, or quite, quite obviously, our participants weren't lost in the environment, right? It's still a fairly simple environment, but uh, precisely locating um, where something belonged uh, was more difficult uh, in, in the trapezoid than in the square, and more so in the narrow end. I mean, is it maybe because, I don't know, in the square you have both the, so let's assume it works exactly the way it does in rats and humans. So in the square, you have both the boundary vector cells and the grid cells, whereas in the trapezoid, you kind of only have the boundary vector cells because the grid cells kind of break down or... Yeah, I mean they're not they don't break down entirely, right? So the the regularity of the pattern breaks down. So you your your basically your memory code might be just less precise. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's not like they just have no idea where they are. Yeah. yeah. I think if that was the case, we would have noticed already. Yeah. Um, just in everyday life, like as soon as we're not in a square room, we just have no idea where we exactly, are. Exactly, yeah. But it is kind of surprising though, right? That just as I said that, it did strike me like this should be something I don't know. It feels like if if the if the if the shape of the room you're in has such an effect on being able to memorize things that we would kind of know that. But I've outside of these basically two studies, I've never heard of the idea that. Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, so, or, or is it just like a fairly small effect that? Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, do I mean, I mean, so so it is a it is a study. Uh, it's, it's a lab study, right? So the situation is is kind of artificial, and generally people were very accurate in remembering these positions, right? So they they knew very well what they were doing. Mm. Maybe anecdotally, the 
um, the building at the Donders Institute where I did my PhD, that's a triangle. And that's uh, quite confusing in the beginning uh, when you walk around the corridors and you end up um, in the same place basically sooner than you, sooner than you thought. <laughs> uh, it's, I have never uh, been in a triangular building, I don't think. Yeah, but I mean, it's a fair point, right? We're, we're much more familiar with uh, rectangular rooms or buildings. Do you think, I'm wondering, are rats more familiar with square rectangular rooms than with trapezoids? I mean, I guess the ones that grow up in the lab probably are, right? I guess they have, uh, like the, the the home cages are typically rectangular, yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe it's yeah. just a... But so one interesting thing about the Krupich paper is that this distortion was very uh, stable over time. So I think they recorded definitely over multiple days. I, I want to say even two weeks, but... Yeah, uh, okay. So you'd yeah. figure if it was like a learning thing then. If it was just yeah. simple. So so there are, there are known to be some like transient effect of, uh, of, of um, the expansion of of grid cell firing patterns when you put them into a new environment mm -hmm. and then yeah. it's a sort of novelty effect this is something that casper uh, berry for example has shown and so it's not that uh, but it's something that that seems to persist over time okay cool. yeah. um one question i wrote down that i think you've kind of already answered in part but i still ask it is that i mean one thing i find kind of interesting about a lot of Christian Dollar studies is that it seems a lot of it is a fairly straightforward translation from findings that have been done in animals to see whether we can test it in humans also. My, my question was kind of whether your study is a straightforward translation and in terms of like, is this possible or not? Or whether there's also kind of an extension of it that kind of shows something that we didn't know before. Yeah, I think maybe it seems like the, the memory aspect might be... Yeah, so so to me, the, the new... Th so had we shown, had we basically done an fMRI experiment and shown that the hexadirectional signal is weaker in the trapezoid than in the square, I would say this is like translating that finding. But because our focus here really was the behavior and uh, or the uh, and memory, I think it's um, yeah, I think it, we, we're kind of trying to use the finding in rodents to learn something uh, about human cognition. And this is actually one aspect that I really, really liked about uh, working on this project was that basically we're taking this finding from from systems neuroscience and we're trying to figure out uh, if this maybe has a relationship to to human memory, right? So this kind of high level uh, human cognitive function. Yeah, and the um, I'm assuming the the Corbett paper didn't have this kind of memory aspect. To no, it. I think this yeah. was yeah. Um, a free foraging task. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I'd kind of like to leave the the um uh the the wait what's the word trapezoid deformed <laughs> yeah like the deformed spaces okay kind of on pause for a second um because kind of I want to talk about this in the abstract cognition sense um so I'll just pause on that for a second and come back to it later before we go to the kind of more abstract cognition thing i was just one thing i've always been curious about is that has anyone done a, a grid cell study in non-euclidean space let's say you have a, like a rat moving around on a on a globe or sphere or something like because the, the kind of basic question is you know in a lab we often have it's always a flat hmm. arena right but obviously, if you walk up a mountain or something like that, then it's very different. I mean, I've talked to Kate Jeffrey on the podcast about her work in 3D, where you have the rats really climbing up and down. But I'm, uh, yeah, just as a kind of curiosity, I'm I, I'm not aware of anyone who's who's looked at 
when yeah if basically you have a flat a surface that's not flat in this sense right yeah i'm not sure if anybody has done that in rodents um not that i know of at least uh, mm-hmm. and i guess it's it's kind of hard to do right yeah walking on a sphere is is quite abstract there's some work going on in our group. Actually, there's a recent preprint by um, Misun oh. Kim, who's a pre uh, who's a postdoc in in our group, okay. and um, she looked at this. Uh, she used this basic object position memory task on a curved surface, so kind of similar to mm-hmm. um, to what you outlined. Yeah, that um, this is behavioral work as well, so you you should definitely check that out. I'm not going to spoil it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and I'll. If I if I can find it, I'll put, which I can, I'll put a link in the description. Okay, cool. So, abstract spaces. I mean, this is the thing that I mean. I, I find the spatial navigation stuff really interesting and fascinating, and it's really one of the things that kind of got me really interested in neuroscience. But in a way, it's also kind of not that interesting because it's just about moving around. And the thing that's kind of most interesting to me, at least, is this this set of papers that came out in the last few years that show that this is not just about moving or memory of moving or where you are in space but that this applies well that's the question right i guess your you in your paper you say it applies to you don't exactly say to everything but it's you, you kind of say it's a kind of domain general thing that can in principle i guess at least yeah code for any variable so yeah can you briefly summarize the kind of yeah the gist of the of your review paper yeah mm, so in this paper we we kind of tried to bridge uh, some gaps, right? So we, we worked together with uh, Edward Moser from, from the physiology side and uh, Peter Gerdenfors, who's a philosopher of mind, to, to sort of try to apply um, what we, we'd known about forming cognitive maps of space. And then uh, these super exciting studies that you referred to that, uh, that sort of came out uh, in the past couple of years that sort of suggests that these spatially tuned cells, cells like uh, place cells or grid cells, also seem to uh, map more abstract uh, dimensions. And we, uh, in our paper, we refer to these abstract spaces as cognitive spaces. And um, we we tried to summarize the findings that had had come out from from different species about how the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex might build cognitive maps uh, in tasks of different domains, and then we tried to outline how this would be important for um, for high level cognition. So, for example, for concept learning, or or, or inference and uh, generalization. Yeah, I think it's a really nice summary of yeah. There's this kind of whole idea because I I, I was aware of a few papers like the Constantinescu paper uh, or. Uh, one or two others but i didn't realize just how much <laughs> had been done in this field already and yeah maybe you you mentioned that you kind of combined the human work the electrophysiology and animals and the philosophy of mind work and i have to admit i'd never heard of peter gerdenfors i don't know mm-hmm. i don't know yeah, he's swedish yeah yeah can you uh, the book sounds super interesting and relevant but i haven't read it can uh what what kind of book is it like uh, yeah and what kind of work does he do because yeah, i'm just not familiar with his work yeah so um peter genfors is a, a professor in lund um and so he works on philosophy of minds and he has this book or his his uh theory actually on conceptual spaces it's not neuroscience so this is really philosophy of mind it's uh, it's his key work there there is also experimental work a bit in uh, that informs this of course but um 
it's uh, it's not really about the brain. And uh, at some point, Christian Jeller and I, um, or Christian became aware of this and kind of pointed me towards it and and I read it and I was kind of fascinated that um, some of these ideas seem to be very much in line what, uh, with what we were seeing uh, in, in the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex. So the, the general idea of this uh, conceptual space that Peter Gerdenfors uh, put forward or proposes is that space is a great representational format to organize knowledge in, right? So you can, um, you can project knowledge into, uh, into a two-dimensional space and then you can define concepts as, as a region in this space. So um, one example that uh, we could maybe use is say, say we have different animals, right? So we have we can arrange them based on how they look, like how uh, how many legs they have, how heavy they are, um, yeah. And so let, let let's say we have those all of the categories we have. <laughs> hmm? that, that's all. all th- that's everything we know. How fast they can run, whatever. How how, how large their teeth are. That's probably relevant. Um, and so let's say you 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 learn that there's this concept of big cats, right? So these will be animals like lions and tigers and uh, maybe a cheetah. And they will occupy a similar region in this uh, conceptual space, right? So they, they'll have similar features. And so so they'll be located close by. Now, one important thing is that um, if you organize um, your knowledge about these animals, or yeah, if, if you organize, if you use a spatial representational format, then you can use very naturally similarity between these um, these entities to generalize, right? So say you've never seen a tiger, but you know a cheetah and you know a lion. And you know that uh, you shouldn't come too close because they're pretty dangerous to you. Then maybe because the, um, uh, the tiger is similar, you can generalize and also not come too close, even if you haven't actually encountered one before. Uh, and so... Um, that's that's one uh, one way in which this uh, spatial representational format is very powerful. Mm-hmm. So a kind of, I mean, in some way, it's it's just reasoning by analogy and using, yeah, whatever variables are most obvious or distinctive or whatever about. Yeah, I mean, this is this is then an an interesting question, right? What what are the dimensions that we uh, that we use to actually uh, organize something and. In the typical lab experiment, uh, these dimensions are, of course, uh, experimentally defined. So they're sort of, well, the the experimenter decides what the relevant dimensions are, right? So um, if you, for example, think about the paper from Tim Barron's group by uh, Alexandra Constantinescu, they have a a space of different birds. And the birds, they differ in uh, how long their neck is and how long their legs are. And so these are the two dimensions that uh, that sort of span the space. Mm, I think it's very interesting to think about more naturalistic settings, right? So or uh, or spontaneous grouping um, in uh, of of stimuli that are not explicitly cued to differ only along two dimensions, right? But along multiple dimensions, and it could be that these are different depending on uh, on the context, right? Yeah. So yeah. In, in one context, it might be more relevant to know. Um, whether the um, the tiger and the lion are similar in that they will eat me, and in, in a different one, it might be more important to, for example, consider where they live uh, and which part of the world you can uh, you can actually find them. Yeah, and I mean, this is kind of where my um, kind of own interests 
come fairly close to this because what I'm kind of interested in is, I should say, like if you have a social situation uh, where you have to make some decision that affects you and someone else or multiple people, whatever, you always have this like objective outcome that's going to happen. People don't make the decision based on the subjective outcome, but rather they have their personal preferences based on whatever context there is, who the other person is, what your history with them is, you know, whatever else is going on in your life or in the situation. And um, so I'm kind of really interested in how exactly this translation happens, um, basically how these preferences affect it and specifically how the brain does that, kind of how you go from this objective outside world to this kind of in decision th via these internal preferences and yeah um one thing that i'm then really curious is about is for example yeah like let's say you have these two dimensions and now they're not space or neck length and leg length but they are you know your payoff and the other person's payoff mm -hmm. for example like how much money do i make if i choose x or y how much does the other person make so I guess if you if you don't mind, shall we speculate a bit on um, how cognitive, abstract cognitive maps relate to this? Mm -hmm. um, or specifically, I'll just ask you to speculate more. <laughs> um, so I guess the first thing is, so let's say I have one axis is my own payoff, the other is the other person's payoff. And depending on who I'm talking to, there's different, I like the other person more or less, right? Uh-huh. Would do you think that would transform the actual kind of map itself, or would you have this kind of objective map, and then you would use that information afterwards at a later stage to, yeah, it's kind of like in a way, like if we want to take the grid cell analogy, like would the grid cell pattern be distorted if I like myself more than you or whatever, so, or yeah. would the grid cell firing still be stable, and then at a later stage we would use that information. So just so I understood the setup, so you would have two axes of of space. It's sort of this. What is it, is it called? The dictator game. The like. This... Uh, that's one. Ex I mean, there's lots of different games that can yeah. manipulate in various ways who gets how much and what right. the options are. Yeah. And so your your idea is that, um, depending on how much you like the other person, that axis is weighted more or less, basically. Well, so let's just it, say we have two options, right? Either like I give. Uh, God, I should have thought of a good example. Um, so let's say you have just a few different options. Kind of, you know, you have... Okay, let's just be specific. So there's a, the prisoner's dilemma is the most famous example. We have four outcomes. Mm -hmm. And each of those outcomes gives you some money and me some money. And, I mean, we both have to make a decision. But let's just think about, like, which one I want. Which one's my preferred option in this? So I have four different outcomes with monetary rewards for me and you. And so these four points kind of lie on this two-dimensional space. And I guess the question is kind of like, if I'm playing with someone I really like versus with someone I don't like at all, would kind of the space still be orthogonal? Would, it, would the grid suffering still be regular? Or would this kind of difference in how much I like the other person just really like shift and deform the space yeah that's a super interesting question um <laughs> by the way i'll just make this like uh, uh you can take as much time as you want and i edit it down to like one second so it looks <laughs> as if you just immediately came up with the answer 
I think one idea or one speculation could be that the the sort of map in the entorhinal cortex, if you like um, know all of these different options, um, could remain sort of normal, if you will, or undistorted, and that then the distortion happens somewhere else. Um, that would kind of probably be my guess, but I don't know the spatial navigation literature that well. And I yeah, wonder so, like, whether there's any equivalent study vaguely, you know. Yeah, well, so at least there's uh, there's some work uh, in rodents that basically the, the grid pattern is also influenced by locations that are frequently rewarded. So if you introduce some regularities in the task, actually, then it can happen that uh, the, the grid pattern already deviates from from its canonical shape. Do you know what um, paper that is? Uh, this is work by uh, Lisa Giacomo, I want to say. Oh, okay. She has an interesting looking like review perspective article. That I want yeah, to exactly. She also has a recent uh, recent Nature Reviews Neuroscience, I think it is, right? Uh, I, haven't, like that, yeah. I haven't had time to read it yet. I have to admit. <laughs> and uh, actually, what you sort of uh, described now is that basically there are two dimensions. And it, uh, so, so or what you described reminds me of a recent paper that came out from the group of Erie Boerman in, uh, in Nature yeah. Neuroscience, where they, uh, where they basically have two social hierarchies that form the dimensions of, uh, of a space. Um, and the task of the participant is... Uh, or the cover story is that the participant is an entrepreneur and they have to select the one uh, that sort of matches or maximizes their their potential and and actually they report some modulation of the um, hexadirectional code in fMRI based on uh, on this uh, decision value if I recall correctly mm-hmm. um, yeah I still have to read that paper completely I've only like skimmed it yeah I guess maybe maybe uh, my question was a bit uh, uh, too too in too much uh, too in depth immediately so maybe we can like backtrack a little bit and ask kind of yeah one one question i'm generally in, interested in is kind of like how far the findings from spatial navigation translate to domain general findings or whether there are things that are specific to spatial navigation that just don't apply to other things and one like maybe fairly straightforward question doesn't mean the answer straightforward but the one question might be like for example what is a landmark non-physical space yeah exactly so i i think there are some challenges to to these ideas right so what what is a landmark you could say a particular salient object that you know very well is uh, something like a landmark right or something like a the prototype of a given category could be something uh, like a reference point uh, that you use right and there's plenty of cognitive psychology work showing that sort of this um uh, processing of reference points also in in, uh, in abstract concepts kind of biases how we how we process information. I think another limitation that's sort of related that uh, boundaries that are really essential to um, to cognitive maps of physical space are much much harder to um, come up with in uh, in an abstract space, right? Um, because I think what makes a boundary so um, so influential in uh, in, in physical space is that you can see it, you can uh, see it from afar, you can use it as a reference point, reference points, it gives you distance information. Uh, and these are uh, things that are not easily implemented in, um, in these sort of abstract spaces, I would say, it's, it's much harder. And if you, like, if you follow up on this notion that uh, a concept is a, is a sort of region 
in an abstract space, then there are boundaries between these um, these concepts, right? So at some point, uh, you go from, from being in concept A towards being in concept B, but maybe in an in a real world naturalistic settings uh, setting these boundaries are not that sharp right they might be sort of uh, fuzzy making them much less suitable to serve as sort of reference points or anchors for your cognitive map right yeah like whilst you were saying that i mean i was thinking kind of like what actually makes a landmark in these navigational studies i mean one thing is that they don't change right they're kind of fixed points um that if you move you you can always evaluate your movement relative to this um yeah, so there, there's some work on uh, on that by, uh, I think, by Eleanor McGuire's group, showing basically that uh, one defining feature of a landmark is that it shouldn't move uh, necessarily, right? And um, typically, we use things as landmarks that don't move, right? So I usually don't use the car that's parked on the sidewalk as a landmark, uh, because yeah. probably when I visit this location next time, it's not going to be there, right? Much rather, I'll use the bus stop, because the bus stop will probably be there yeah, um, yeah but so in terms of how this position relative to a landmark is coded there's there's some recent work in uh, in the physiology world about object vector cells right that basically um, give you your position uh, relative to a landmark these are cells that fire at a given distance and direction to a landmark that's in the environment and then if you move that landmark um, the firing field of that cell uh, will also shift uh, by a corresponding mm -hmm. amount. Yeah, but that that's all in animals, still, right? This is in animals, yeah. But uh, I think it's uh, it's a great question to also try to tackle this in uh, in the human brain and maybe in also abstract uh, sort of dimensions. Like one example I'm thinking about right now is maybe let's say something like one concept might be a person's height, for example, because it's still kind of physical, um, but. Uh, let's maybe use that as an example. I mean, I guess, could landmarks be something like, I don't know, for example, like two meters tall or something as like a a kind of, or boundary or something like a cutoff point or something where you, or, or something that's like, hmm. I don't know, like I'm trying to think of something that really. So I would have speculated that if you think about height, that maybe the height of someone that you're very familiar is, is something like a landmark. Yeah, so maybe. maybe the height of your partner, uh, you sort of, uh, it's, it's easy for you to say someone's taller or shorter than that. Sorry, I just, I just saw the perfect study. So you're going to use your parents as landmarks. And as you grow <laughs> up, you move close to the boundary. Or right. So now all you have to do is just track lots of children. Just <laughs> <laughs> longitudinally. That's brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, an interesting idea that's completely unfeasible to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but something like that, right? I mean, it seems like you... Um, or, okay, maybe, or let's say... Uh, I don't know what I'm thinking of this example, but like when you you watch a film or something and you're supposed to rate how good it is, maybe you have like your three favorite films or something that pretty much your, your appreciation of this may be unchanged or something, so then you view them as kind of like exemplars of what yeah, makes you, a good you, film or something like that yeah exactly yeah that you you might have your favorite comedy and your favorite action movie and you, you compare based on these yeah, re reference points basically right that you yeah, could use yeah. yeah but it's 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 kind of funny to me how in a way this 
it seems it should be straightforward, right? Right? You have like, oh yeah, you walk through two dimensions. You've got, but then as soon as you, I don't know, it's something that to me at least seems like the application should be fairly straightforward, but it's actually much trickier. Maybe it's just because I don't work on the application, so it just seems easier from the outside because I only see the the final papers. But I mean, yeah, no, I'm not saying that. The, you know what I mean, right? Like, I'm not saying this work is easy. I'm still surprised, like how how difficult I find it to think of the concepts that I'm interested in. And kind of fit it into this framework. Hmm, yeah, um. yeah. So actually, to me, one one of the things that I really like about um, this is that it sort of merges this very detailed knowledge that we have about how how the system works in physical space. Like we know a lot. We learned so much from these uh, these studies in rodents, and also from the navigation work in humans. Only that actually gives us the possibility to think about. Uh, think about it in this uh, level of detail. Like I think that's that's quite unique. That somewhere pretty deep in the brain, right? You get this sort of more or less abstract code for positions in space, right? Um, that um, that is sort of abstracted from other perceptual information. And um, I, I feel there's been amazing work on on teasing apart how these representations come about. I mean, we still there's still so much we don't understand, but we actually do know quite a lot, and or we we do know some very cool things about it. And uh, these only allow us to um, to ask these questions about how it might work on for for other uh, domains, right? And that's why why I find it so interesting to think about uh, whether these mechanisms uh, apply uh, outside of uh, the navigation world. I mean, it's almost like a a way to jumpstart creativity and having ideas about what you're thinking about because you can just go like, okay, I'm doing this study. What's a landmark? Or like yeah. in this research area, what's that? What's that? And then right. you just have and, lots and, of new ideas. And probably that's that's taking it or making it way too simple, right? So probably it's not just going to... No, no, I mean, just for like apply, a like, generation. Even, exactly, right? yeah. You yeah. can you can brainstorm a lot, right? And you have, have cool yeah. ideas uh, about what you can test, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, when whilst you were talking about the the Corbett paper, I was thinking this. Yeah, we know so much about the navigational system, and yet you can, again, I'm oversimplifying completely. You can have a Nature paper in 2015 showing like what what happens if the box not square, <laughs> you know? Again, yeah. So this was not their only finding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. But you know what I mean, right? Like, it's it, it's I find it funny how often in, in in lots of other research areas also, right? You have these like very um these findings that are really cool super well known and everything and then you ask like some basic thing and it suddenly changes like how you view the the whole thing um, yeah anyway bef- uh, before we kind of uh finish i i want to ask i guess it's a fairly big question and something that you also address in this which is how many how many dimensions can you do with this right yeah <laughs> because that to me seems like a pretty important question I agree. Um, it's a super important question. One thing that I'm so th- so there are different aspects to it, right? So on the one hand, is if we're really coming from or trying to take the physical space analogy far, then we're going to get in trouble after three dimensions, right? And there's this super interesting work by Kate Jeffrey, who who you had on the show, and uh, by Nachum Ulanovsky, who studies. Uh, flying bats, right, about place cells and grid cells um, in uh, in 3D spaces. And 
they do seem to exist. They seem to, uh, at least for the grid cells, they seem to be behaving slightly differently from what we uh, we might have expected. Yeah. But I mean, things will break down if we go into higher dimensions. And if you look at uh, at human cognition or human spatial cognition, already then the third dimension is often encoded uh, less precisely than um, than basically uh, the flat surface, which might be because we're it's harder for us to to or we we less frequently navigate uh, in in the third dimension. Right? To me, humans kind of are two dimensional animals, right? I mean, sure, we can move like within if we raise our arm or whatever. We can get we can go up a ladder or something, but yeah, and we walk through buildings and uh, we've got that have yeah. have stairs and so on, right? But but that's yeah. pretty. We're we're not that great at three D and yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we should test navigation and divers, uh, something like that, to get like volumetric. You want to do fMRI uh, study underwater? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Someone might drown. I guess you just need an epileptic patient with the electrodes implanted. Waterproof. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so there's. It seems to me there's kind of two kind of obvious ways in which this could go. Either it could actually be something that scales for however many dimensions you might want in a given situation, which potentially many, but let's be honest, usually is only a few that are really relevant. But so that's kind of one way, right? Where it can, can actually contain lots of different dimensions at the same time. Or this is the other option that seems kind of obvious to me is that it actually is limited to three or four dimensions and the brain has to kind of figure out beforehand which dimension it feeds into it to deal with the situation. Um, do you have any yeah. uh, speculation again about which one would be? So, more... so one speculation for me is that we can break down these sort of knowledge kind of problems to dimensions that we think are relevant at a given time, and probably we cannot handle too many of them at the same time. Uh, I, th I I do think, um, and I mean, there's lots of work on the use of heuristics, for example, right? So we we're not perfect uh, at information processing. Actually, actually, we're quite far from it. Um, so um, I, I think that that's possible. Maybe one thing is that there are also other accounts of how the hippocampus works that focus sort of more on transitions between different states where defining individual dimensions is maybe not not as central as to this idea of... Um, of conceptual right. spaces, right? Where you really have to define dimension, or where, where you define dimensions based on what the uh, what the stimulus features are. So um, these could sort of, or maybe they could uh, yield testable predictions in cases where you go beyond uh, something that you can um, uh, you can represent with three D Euclidean map. Yeah, so much to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, like you know, when you first hear about this in. In my case, in my master's about spatial navigation stuff, you're like, "Wow, they figured this out." Yeah, like we we know this now, done. right? This yeah, is exactly. done. <laughs> and then, then once you actually do research, you go like, "Oh, this is just the beginning. Yeah. This is where it starts." But so, does it? Do, do you think it would? It seems to me like your the the your review paper is kind of. I mean, you you address the question that this is an important question, but you kind of outline it. Um, how should we say, independent of how many dimensions this can mm. um, kind of encode for. Um, just showing like the general principle and whether it works for three or ten is maybe another question. But I'm just curious, does it 
how how does it how would your i'm assuming you have also like maybe some slightly bigger theories of like how this all fits together how would this change depending on whether the system can do three dimensions or whether it can do 10 dimensions does that yeah kind of how do, how would that those two options let's say change how you think about how this fits into the bigger picture of i don't know memory decision making um huh <laughs> i haven't uh, thought about it from this direct angle so um I, I, so to me, then, if we figure out that we can only do a certain number of dimensions, um, then I think the the next obvious question is, how do we select the important ones, right? Because that's not always uh, immediately clear. There, there, there might be situations where um, where I ask you, I don't know, how friendly is this person? Then it's then it's maybe clear. But uh, if you just ask me, what about X? Um, yeah. then I can uh, judge them on very many uh, different dimensions. And so to me, this would, um, I, I think in both cases, it becomes interesting, right? Um, how can we uh, keep online so many dimensions and combine them? And do we maybe weight them equally? Or if we have to select them, how do we, uh, how do we pick? Or do we sort of do some some implicit dimensionality reduction uh, so we end up with uh, some approximation of a higher dimensional space right yeah 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 and that yeah uh, there's so many links but i think uh <laughs> um yeah i think we have to stop it here otherwise we're gonna be here forever uh because yeah i mean this is i find this really fascinating and um for me i kind of i was really interested in the spatial navigation literature then um basically for fairly random reasons i didn't end up doing research on it and ended up doing other things and now it's kind of coming back and i'm trying to kind of combine the two and it's just uh yeah as i said it's earlier like i think it's a really cool way also just to have new ideas about what you're doing like not you specifically but what about what one is doing yeah and what one might do as as an experiment uh maybe it's the last kind of question um what do you plan on doing next or what's what's your kind of current research what, what kind of direction at least yeah um so at the moment i'm kind of working more on the representations of um, relations that occur in episodic sequences so the idea is that our uh, our memories kind of consist of different sequences of events so um my memory of our podcast recording uh, we'll be doing this technical technical setup. Then you do a, we we did a little um, introductory check, uh, and uh, now we talk. And maybe afterwards I'll ha I'll have some dinner. And so I'm interested in uh, how we represent the temporal relationships between these events, similarly to positioning them along a dimension in in an abstract space. And so this is something that I'm currently working on and. Um, looking at basically what happens if we have multiple sequences that have uh, a similar structure to to look at whether we uh, whether the hippocampus sort of generalizes across uh, sequences that are sort of similar. So I might have a similar memory if I were invited to a different podcast. And uh, basically, I'm l looking at whether um, what we know from one sequence affects how we represent the other one. Right. Yeah. Okay. So this is, uh, it's connected, but it's uh, it's a bit more memory focused, yeah, yeah. I, I would say. Yeah, yeah, it seems like you're going back to yeah. 
back, back to, to your the initial roots. interest. <laughs> exactly. Okay, cool. Um, oh, I guess this is going to maybe be a, take a while until that paper is going to come out. But I'll read it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cool.